Good morning, my name is Jeff, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, again, want to welcome you, especially if you are worshiping with us, maybe for the very first time today. Um, Aaron, I'm getting a, my voice, does it sound weird? It sounds weird up here, but that could just be me. Does it, do I sound weirder, weirder than normal? You're all shaking your head, okay. <laughs> I'm going to not read into that, but okay. So we'll work that out, that's fine, but I'm glad you're here, and um, again, we exist as a church. Uh, it's on our wall, but we endeavor to be faithful to that, to that. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And like I said, we endeavor to be ever so faithful to that. That means there's a reason why we do what we do. There's a reason why we gather here on Sundays to corporately worship God. There's a reason why we gather in small groups and in home groups to immerse ourselves in God's word. There's a reason why we're sent out, as Drew just prayed, in mission to be evangelists, to preach and teach and counsel and care for people and to serve them, uh, and there's a reason uh, why uh, we uh, submit our lives underneath God's word. So you understand we don't take God's word, use it as a springboard, a diving board, and jump out into all sorts of things. No, we actually are learning more and more to submit our lives underneath the word of God. That's how we will flourish, amen? That's all free information for you, but I hope it's good. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark, as we continue here in our series. In the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 6, we're actually going to finish Mark chapter 6 today. Mark chapter 6, I'll start reading at verse 45, and then go through the end of the chapter to verse 56. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gesenaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we are, we are desperate to hear from you this morning. We need to hear your voice speaking to us. So speak by your spirit through your word. None of us are here by accident, Lord. You have a purpose, you have a plan for every person here. 
And so, God, in your kind grace, I pray this morning that your people would hear a far better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. Please do that. Speak to us, feed us, strengthen us. God, convict us in the areas of our lives where, where that's what we really need, your holy conviction. May we know of your steadfast love for us, I pray. And do all this, Lord, for the sake of your great name. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. I shared this story with some of you uh, a bit of a time ago, but I have a friend who works for a missionary organization, and he posted a very fascinating story on Facebook. Family was traveling by boat from Greece to Turkey, and their young daughter suddenly fell off the edge of the boat into the water, and nobody saw her. And obviously, the family began to fear the worst, thinking that she had died, thinking that they had lost her. But there she was, dry on the other side of the boat. And she kept repeating that a man dressed in white, walking in water, had picked her up and put her in the back of the boat. And her parents thought she was crazy. And they eventually make it to shore, the boat they were on docked at the island, and there they were immediately met by a Christian man. And this Christian man then began to share the gospel with this family. And the way that he began to share the gospel with his family was by telling them about a God who walks on water from Mark chapter 6. He started telling them about Jesus. And immediately the whole family started to cry. And this Christian man said later that he had never shared the gospel through Mark chapter 6 before. He hadn't even thought about it before, but he saw this family walking to, them, to him on the shore and he just felt compelled by God to share a story about the God who walks on water. And that day, that whole family became Christians. How does that story connect with you? It, it kind of redeemed Facebook for me. <laughs> like, I'm trying to unfriend myself, I said that, but maybe I'll stick around a little bit longer if there's stories like that on Facebook that are actually true. But I wonder what you're thinking about now. I mean, I hope many of you are encouraged when you hear that. You hear stirring accounts like this, something extraordinary like that, of a movement of God, and you think that, that just encourages me to deeper faith, to greater joy in Christ. Maybe some of you are thinking about the last time you tried to share your faith, maybe it was this last week, and it didn't exactly go like that. Instead of whole families repenting and rejoicing and in tears, well, you opened up your mouth and words kind of stumbled around and you kind of fumbled through it and you got a blank stare and the conversation ended. That's kind of what happens to me more often than not. But maybe others of you here are, are thinking, yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't even think that could happen. Maybe you're a bit skeptical, maybe even cynical. There's no way that, there's no way that something like that can happen because we all know miracles don't happen unless you're a Mariners fan, <laughs> then evidently they do. You believe in miracles, whatever, enough said. <laughs> Give me a few weeks to let it, let it, let it heal. <laughs> but what, scoring a lot of runs in a, in a baseball game, that's one thing. But, but this, could this actually really happen? I mean, and so you may even be thinking, you know what? 
This is why I can't even believe the Bible. This is why I can't trust the Bible, because you Christians believe in such fanciful stories like this, uh, a man dressed in white, walking on water. I mean, that's just, that's just like fairy tales. Let's be serious. Men don't walk on water. And so we have a bit of a challenge, don't we? The miracles we read about here in the Gospels present a challenge to us as Christians and certainly in our day, and we live in a very confused day where on the one hand we purport to be so enlightened in our observations and yet we're so darkened in our understanding. We get to a miracle like this, Jesus walking on water in Mark chapter 6, and and we somehow feel this instant need to prove how it actually happened. We've got to show how it can be done. We we somehow need to show that Jesus walking on water here, well, that's not in conflict with science, that's not in conflict with the laws of nature. But isn't it interesting that the gospel writers don't share that concern? It's not even on their radar at all. They're not even really concerned about proving the miracles happened or even providing a whole lot of details about how they happened. It's not on the radar, and nor should it be. Mark here simply reports the facts. All the gospel writers, this is what happened. Remember, the same people reading the gospel of Mark here had experienced these miracles for themselves. And if they hadn't experienced the miracle for themselves, then they surely knew somebody who had or they had witnessed or knew others who had. Because the the vast majority, brothers and sisters, of the miracles in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were very, very public, okay? That doesn't mean that millions of people saw them, but it certainly means that thousands of people witnessed them, thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands, if we think about all of Israel. Remember last week, there were upwards of 15, if not 20,000 people who were gathered there and saw Jesus change the five loaves and the two fish and multiply them. I mean, these were life-changing miracles. This is not, I had a toothache, and then I didn't. It's a miracle. Now, these are life-changing miracles that we're reading about here in the Gospel of Mark. A leper is made clean. A demon-possessed man is made whole. A young girl is raised From the dead, a blind man now sees, a lame man can now walk and run through town. Thousands saw it. Everybody knew it, and Mark simply reports it. Thousands of people had their lives changed as a result. That's why we read this, uh, if you skip to the very end of our text here, verses 53 and 56, there's, there's all kinds of people from villages and countrysides. They're all coming to Jesus, and everyone is seeing what he is doing. There's no need for the gospel writers to actually tell us how all this happened or give it. No, they just simply report it. It did, and nobody fought that. I think of the very last verse in John chapter 21, verse 20. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So with Jesus, you don't just get a miracle here and there, shrouded in mystery, in the darkness. We're not exactly sure what's going on. No, with Jesus, you have thousands upon thousands of people whose lives have been changed. Nobody's saying it didn't happen. Mark is reporting the facts. And yet, there are still questions concerning Jesus. There's still 
some mystery surrounding Jesus and who he is and who is this miracle worker. And our text shows us here that not everybody understood what was going on. Not everybody could make all the connections that, that in fact, Jesus is wanting them to make. In fact, his own disciples didn't get it. The very ones who should have been able to put the pieces together, well, we read in our text, were just about torn to pieces by a violent storm. And then they saw something that none of them would ever forget for the rest of their earthly lives. God walked on the water. So this text has a lot to teach us about us, about who we are as disciples of Jesus, what it means to follow him in faith. It also has a lot to teach us about Jesus, the true king, who he really is, what his mission is. And if we hang in there long enough, there's also a test. There's a challenge for us at the end of this text for each one of us this morning. So we're going to teach, I want us to, to focus in, in those three categories. What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about Jesus? And then there is that challenge at the end. Let me just set the scene for us so we're all on the same page here. This is verses 45 through 46. Here's the context. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat Go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Now Mark says three things happened, and they happened really fast, immediately. That's Mark's favorite word. He, boom, boom, boom. There's no debrief of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 5,000. There are no photo ops there. There wasn't a time to get together. Let's, hey, Jesus, what are you thinking? Let's plan the next miracle. This is really good. None of that. Number one, with haste, Jesus puts his disciples in a boat. The Greek there is actually, he, he forces them. He physically forces them into the boat and he sends them out to sea. So the disciples, after the feeding of the 5,000 or 20,000, they're kind of like little children who, they're just having a great time. I mean, they're looking into their baskets. There's more food. They can't exhaust it all. And they're saying, hey, we're having such a great time here, Jesus. We don't really want to get into the car and go home. And Jesus here is saying, you need to get in the car and go home. Get into the boat, guys. And I imagine that he gives them a shove out to sea. That's the first thing that happens. Second, Jesus dismisses the crowd. Basically tells them to go home. So you have 15,000, 20,000 people now who are heading home. They're having just been fed. They've been satisfied by Jesus, although so many in that crowd, their bellies are now full, yet... Their hearts are still spiritually starving. We read in John's gospel that, well, the crowd, they didn't want to go home either. In fact, the crowd had other ideas for Jesus. They wanted him to seize the moment. Hey, Jesus, this is the opportunity. We should storm Rome. That's what we should do. You should be king now, Jesus. And so we read in John chapter 6, verse 35. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, well, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the thousands who had just experienced the miracle-working power of Jesus, they're now wanting Jesus to rise up, to vanquish Rome, uh, to, to take Rome by force. But Jesus is not that kind of king. He's not a political leader who has come to emancipate Israel from Roman occupation. No, Jesus had far more sinister enemies to deal with and a much bigger 
mission than that. Because Jesus would conquer the powers of hell through his death on a Roman cross. That was his mission. His mission was to deliver spiritually dead sinners, those who who had incurred the wrath of God because of our sins, to free us from the bondage of sin and death and misery. And so Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. The crowds didn't quite get that. Jesus also knew that his disciples didn't actually get that either. And so that's why third, Jesus retreats to a mountain to pray. Now, if you're keeping score, this is the third time that we read in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus gets away by himself, sometimes it says to a lonely place, to a mountainside, to pray. He prays at the beginning of his public ministry. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 35. He certainly prays at the end of his earthly ministry when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, drops of blood. That's Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And here we find him praying really right in the middle of his earthly ministry. Now, obviously, Jesus was a man of prayer. That's never been in question. But here we see in in the most critical earthly moments of his life, we would say, arguably, when Jesus is at his greatest moment of earthly need, What do we see him doing? He's getting away to commune with his heavenly father. I mean, Jesus needed face time with God. He needed time alone with God to consider what lay ahead for him. And what lay ahead for Jesus was a throne, indeed. But first he must face the cross. The glory and the victory would come but not before agony and suffering and a brutal crucifixion and death. It's always the cross before the crown. That's true with us. As we follow Jesus, it's always this side of eternity. It's the cross before the crown. If Jesus needed time away to pray, I really need to pray, and so do you. So building intentional periods of prayer daily, weekly, monthly, it's not just a good habit, brothers and sisters, that that we do and, you know, we trust that God will bless. He will. But the truth is, your life and mine, your future and mine, all that lays ahead for us as a church and as individuals, that depends on us hearing and communing and listening and having face time with God. Mark now draws our attention then to the plight of the disciples. Jesus has just sent his disciples in the boat alone. He shoves them off to sea. And if you know these disciples well, as we're learning here, you should probably have the same feeling that you would have when the neighbor down the street uh, goes out for supper and there's six kids at home for the evening. You just think, you know what? That's probably not a good idea. I don't think that's really going to end well. And one of the very interesting things we see here in the Gospel of Mark is that almost every time the disciples get away from Jesus, they find themselves in trouble. They encounter problems. It's almost as if the farther away the disciples get from Jesus, the more trouble they find themselves in. Read into that what you will. Verse 47, the disciples are in the boat, they're on the sea, where's Jesus? Well, he's on the land. 
But yet, here they are. They're in trouble. Verse 48, they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. There's an interesting Greek phrase there. They were struggling tormentedly with torment. They are trying to row here, but they're rowing against this fierce wind. Mark tells us it's the third watch of the night and the Roman clock. That's really between 3 and 6 a.m. And so they've been probably rowing here, struggling tormentedly against the wind for six to eight hours easy. So it's the middle of the night. It's dark. The disciples are in the middle of the lake. They're struggling. They're weary. They're fighting for their lives. And Jesus is not with them. That doesn't seem to be a good spot to be in, does it? That would seem to be the epitome of need. And it's even worse if you consider that it was actually Jesus who sent them away. I mean, Jesus was the one that gave him a kick and said, go. Well, what's he up to here? What's Jesus up to with his disciples? Now, we get a clue. We actually get the answer if you skip down to verse 52, where we learn that the disciples' hearts are very hard. They didn't quite know it. Jesus knew it. So clearly here, the disciples were in need of further training. And we'll talk about their hardness of heart here with the lows in just a minute. It's, it's not really about the bread, folks, but we'll get there. But their hearts were hard. They needed further training. This actually should be a great encouragement to every one of us here this morning, wherever you are in your walk with Jesus. Nobody comes to Jesus in faith and then suddenly transforms like that into a spiritual giant you got all the answers there's not going to be really any issues you just kind of coast through life that's not it at all following jesus being a disciple of jesus that's not a a six-week class that you take and then you move on and you think okay i'm good i learned everything i need to learn that's not even a three-year class following jesus faithfully as his disciple is the rest of your earthly life so some of you may just be getting started in that Amen, praise God. That's super exciting. Others of you may have been following Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years. That's also exciting. Praise God. But for all of us here, following Jesus is not a quick fix. And we are learning to be lifelong learners. Learning to, to, to love the things that Jesus loves, to, to hate the things that Jesus hates. It's going to take the rest of our earthly lives. Now, Jesus knows this. The disciples, they're not getting this. But praise God for the compassion and the patience of Jesus that he doesn't give up on any of us, even though sometimes we give him ample reason to. So what did these disciples need to learn? And really, what is it that we are to learn here at this point in our story? I think there's two lessons. Number one, in the normal course of your Christian life, you will face adversity and hardship. And there will be times when Jesus seems absent. Let me say that again. In the normal course of following Jesus, of trusting Jesus, of living for Jesus, you and I will face times of adversity and struggle and trouble, and it will seem as if Jesus is nowhere to be found. It may seem that he's absent. We shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't be shocked at that. And this is where we find the disciples in this story. Nor should we conclude, brothers and sisters, that somehow we are alone, that it is just up to us, that maybe Jesus has abandoned us. 
Simply because Jesus seems absent doesn't mean that he is. Simply because we feel like maybe he's absent certainly doesn't make it so. We certainly can't always know with clarity. Sometimes we don't even know a lot of God's redemptive purposes, of his sovereign plan and how he's using these trials and storms in the moment. We're not guaranteed that. But we can lean into him. We can express faith in him in the middle of the storm. And we can trust him that he will use the storms, the trials, the periods of adversity in our life to actually grow us in faith, to mature our faith. Suffering and adversity are the kind of teachers that you just want to skip. Nobody likes them. But we're really not going to grow in faith in Christ apart from them. So that's the first lesson. Here's the second one. There are going to be times in your Christian life when you are absolutely at the end of yourself. You've come to the end of your resources. Maybe that was this last week. You're just saying, Lord, I don't have another card to play. I don't even know what to do. I'm not even sure what you're doing. I can't see the way ahead. Don't lose hope. The disciples really are at this point. In fact, they've been paddling here, rowing against this violent wind, struggling tormentedly for hours. And in fact, what we read is that they're, they're not even going in the right direction. They've been pushed way off course. There will be times in your Christian life that you are working very, very hard and not making, at least to your account, very little progress. And that's normal. I know desperation, like spiritual desperation, and, and an acute sense of your helplessness. Desperation and helplessness are not among the list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. I actually looked this week. But that's actually a really good place to be. But frequently... It is Jesus who needs to bring us to that point. So often I find this in my own life. It's Jesus that has to shove me out to sea. And he does that with you too. And if you sense that he's doing that in your life this morning, that that's the direction, that's not because he's abandoned you. That's actually because he loves you. He wants to build your faith. Not, not erode it. So don't resist him. He wants to do a good work in your life. But oftentimes, brothers and sisters, and I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor and this is what pastors are supposed to say. I'm just saying this because I'm Jeff and I'm a normal guy. But oftentimes, we've got to come to the end of ourselves. I have to come to the end of myself and my abilities and my striving and my intellect and all of that so that I can actually recognize and see the Lord begin to do a good move. So are you at the end of yourself this morning? Don't answer that. You're not. I'm not either. But can, can we ask the Lord to move us there? Lord, I confess. I, I don't know what to do. So have mercy. Show me. God, show up in this meeting this week. Show up in this conversation with my angry neighbor, spouse, daughter, fill in the blank. God, I'm at the end. Man, that's, that's when the Lord begins to do a good work. Sometimes he shows up in miraculous ways, as he does here. Jesus sees his disciples in trouble. They're struggling mightily against the wind and the waves. And he does what no one has done before. 
ever or since. Verse 48. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. They were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. I mean, it would have been pretty cool if in the middle of this violent windstorm that Jesus came swimming up to those guys. It would have been a welcome sight. Hey, that's cool. He's going to rescue us. I think it would have been also very cool if, if Jesus wasn't swimming, that maybe, maybe they saw him in a boat with some other big guys, and there was a, a rescue boat, and then they were going to be saved. That would also be cool. But Jesus walking on the water. Are you kidding me? And this is why critical scholars have, in my estimation, humbly, They've wasted a whole lot of ink trying to determine how this could actually happen. How is it possible that Jesus could walk on the water? So there's all kinds of fanciful answers. Well, perhaps uh, it, it was, uh, there was a, just a, a really huge, large rock bed, like three and a half miles long. He was just walking on that. It was a really, really big sandbar, also for you know, right into the middle of the sea. Or this is... This is maybe my favorite one. No, no, Jesus didn't actually walk on water. There was just a very, very deep fog so you couldn't really see him. He was actually just walking on the shore the whole time. Can I just say that the only, the only fogginess in this story are so-called biblical scholars like that who are trying to say, trying to explain this in, in some different way. So that is just baloney. Think about the disciples. They're, they're probably the best indication that this is what happened. They are absolutely terrified. The, the word there is that they actually saw a ghost. They're, they see a phantom. Now, if Jesus was just paddling up to them, they would just be happy to see them, wouldn't they? Great rescue operation. If Jesus came in a boat, that'd be even better. This is great. No big deal. Thank you. But given the context, given the middle of the night, the raging storms, it seems like the normal, appropriate human response would be sheer terror. I mean, if this next summer you're out on Liberty Lake or one of the many lakes that we enjoy here and it's dark, it's the middle of the night and you're in your canoe and the wind just comes up and you are paddling ferociously and you think, man, my life is in danger and then you see a man walking on the water, well, that would probably terrify you too, wouldn't it? That would freak us, any of us out. So what's going on here then? Who is this man that is walking on the water? What do we learn about Jesus? And brothers and sisters, this, this is Mark's point, really, of this whole passage. This is actually Mark's point of pretty much the entire book of Mark. Here's what we learn. Jesus is God come down to earth. Jesus is God come down to earth. Jesus is acting here with divine authority, doing only the things that God can do. So look with me at verse 48. He came to them walking on the sea. And here's this interesting phrase. He meant to pass by them. Now, you might read that and think, okay, what is, what is that supposed to mean? Like, he meant to go around them? Jesus meant to kind of hide from them? And what, he's going to kind of snake his way to the back of the boat and then jump in? and like, boo, I'm here. No, 
I mean, this phrase, to pass by, it's absolutely loaded with theological significance. So uh, this is where we need our Old Testament, brothers and sisters. Exodus 33, verse 19, Moses said to God, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God replied, I will cause all my goodness to pass by in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence when my glory passes by. Passing by. I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 1 Kings 19.11, God told Elijah, hey, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Why? For the Lord is about to pass by. So Jesus here, he's not only just walking on water. I mean, that tells us that he is no normal person, but he's actually passing by. That, brothers and sisters, is the language of God. That's the language of God revealing himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what God did uh, as he revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai and Elijah there at Mount Horeb. God is now revealing himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is revealing his divine glory to his disciples, his terrified disciples. And what Mark wants us to know is that the same Jesus who is now walking on the water, well, that's the God who created the waters. Job 9.8, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. You can say a lot about Jesus. You can dismiss him as a, as a kook. You can disagree with what he's done, but he's not simply a good teacher or a worthy prophet. That's not even an option he is, in fact, God come down to earth because he's acting here with divine authority. He's doing things that only God can do. And not only is Jesus acting in ways that only God can act, but now he actually speaks with that same divine authority. He's speaking words that only God speaks. Verse 50, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The more literal rendering there, this is my translation, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Now we have already established in weeks past that the disciples there, terrified as they are, but they're very normal guys, they're fishermen, they're not road scholars, they're not class valedictorians, none of them won any most successful award. They tend to learn their lessons the hard way, just like many of us. But they are Jewish here, and so I think when Jesus speaks to them here and says, I am, well, we would hope that they might remember something from what Nana and Papa shared with them around the dinner table many years ago. Remember when Moses asked God for his name, when God first revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3.14. Remember what God said? He gave his name as I am. Which, by the way, last week, Sunday school, Isaac talked about this. I am. I am is God's personal name. I mean, that's how God describes himself. And that's why later on in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus himself 
declares himself to be the great I am, the one who led the Hebrews out of Egypt and as they made their way safely through the waters of the Red Sea. So the great I am, brothers and sisters, is now walking on the water in the middle of the storm. Jesus passes by them and reveals to these terrified disciples his identity. It's like he's saying, remember me, this is who I am. Why? Well, so that his disciples would not fear, but that they would turn to him in faith, that they would have firm confidence in him. And so, so understand the point here, brothers and sisters. The point isn't that Jesus is going to rescue them from every storm. I mean, he, he actually does that here. But the point is that the great I am is with them in every storm, in every trial, in every trouble. And that's true for us. The, the point here of this text is, is not that God is going to deliver you or spare you or me from every trouble and trial or storm. The point is that he is with you in every trouble and trial and storm so that you're not alone. The great I am is with you. But you do need to recognize him for who he is. If you don't see the great I am with you, well, then you are still in trouble. We need not fear, because not only does Jesus walk where only God walks, not only does he, but he also talks in the way that God talks. And just notice what he says here. Do not be afraid, I am. This is yet another one of those passages that we come upon in our Bibles where, where I am routinely just amazed. I am amazed at Jesus because Jesus doesn't need a lot of words to calm the human heart. Like with Jesus, a lot of times, less is really more. He can speak one word or two words, and a person's life changes. And that's what he does here. He, he often uses such very simple words to, to calm fearful people. I am, do not be afraid. So often in the Bible, when God or Jesus approaches fearful people or anxious people or worried people or fretting people or stressed people or absolutely terrified people, he comes with such profound simplicity. I mean, in this situation, Jesus doesn't look at his disciples and say, wow, I can see you guys are freaked out. I can see you're terrified. Why do you lack faith? Tell me the idols that you've been worshiping this week. Let's talk about that. How long have you been fearful and anxious? Those are appropriate questions at some point, but he doesn't say that. No, Jesus simply sees his terrified disciples and he says, it's, it's okay. I am. Don't be afraid. It's kind of the same thing, I think, parents, that you would say to your young child if they have a nightmare in the middle of the night, they come running to you and they climb up in your bed, they're in fear and terror. The first words out of your mouth are not, Oh, man, Johnny, what kind of idols have you been worshiping this week? What, what do you think really going on in your heart, Johnny? What do you think that reveals about who or what you're worshiping? You know, as a parent, you're just bringing your child close, and you're just saying, Daddy's here. Mommy's here. We got this. It's going to be okay. 
And that's what Jesus does here with these terrified disciples. Brothers and sisters, the compassion of Jesus for fearful people, for weary people, for struggling people, for people who don't know what the next move in their life is, for people who have come to the end of themselves is compassion. Off the charts, compassion. Nobody, nobody is more compassionate to struggling, fearful, terrified, exhausted, weary disciples who maybe are, maybe have had enough than Jesus. And so maybe it's just those simple words that you need to hear today from your king and from your savior. He looks at you and he says, I am. Don't be afraid. I got this. The point of this miracle, church, really the point of all the miracles of Jesus is that every last person on the face of the globe would know who he really is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. So put your faith in him. So worship him. I mean, you would think this would have registered with the disciples here. Not quite, and not yet. I mean, even though the great I am is in the boat with these disciples now, and even though the winds have ceased, the disciples, they're still not on board with Jesus and his mission. Verse 51, they were, the winds ceased and they were astounded. Some of your translations may say that they were amazed. Both of those are not in the positive. That's not a good thing. It's used here in the negative. In other words, it communicates unbelief confusion, a deep, deep lack of understanding, like what is going on here? Which actually leads to one of the more peculiar verses in this text, at least I think it's peculiar, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I mean, the disciples witnessed miracle after miracle. They were on the front lines with Jesus here. They had access to him. They, they saw all that he was doing, but they still didn't get it. They're not understanding who Jesus really is and what he's come to do. And so the lesson of the loaves was not just about bread. The lesson of the loaves was that God was at work in Jesus and through Jesus to accomplish his saving and redemptive purposes. It really wasn't about the loaves. But the disciples didn't understand that. I mean, they saw all these miracles of Jesus, all of them very, very public, but they were still largely ignorant of him. They just didn't know what to do with Jesus. They should have understood something of what Jesus was getting at in the feeding of the 5,000. They, they should have known that it was way back in Mark chapter 4, remember, that, that Jesus had come to see that he fed the 5,000, but yet they missed it. It's not about Jesus and bread, it's about Jesus being the bread of life, that he'd come to save sinners, to, to grant them eternal life. And the disciples didn't get this, and their hearts were hardened. They were hardened. Again, Jesus had calmed the sea, Mark 4. He'd fed the 5,000 or 20,000, yet at the first sign of trouble here on the water, what did the disciples do? They fail to recognize Jesus. They fail to trust Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, we really liked when he healed the, the leper. That was really cool. 
that we really like. When you brought back that girl from the dead, Jesus, that was also cool. And feeding the 5,000, that, that was really, really cool. But you know what? In our moment of earthly need, Jesus, we actually see you as a ghost, not a savior. That's convicting, isn't it? And that's sobering. It's one thing to face adversity and hardship and suffering because you are seeking to follow Jesus in faith. You're seeking to activate your faith. It's quite another thing to face adversity and hardship and suffering because you lack faith and your heart is hard towards Jesus. So this leaves us with a test, a challenge for all of us this morning. The disciples' hearts are hardened. They, they don't know what to do with Jesus and when your heart is hardened, you don't know what to do with Jesus either. When your heart is hard towards him, you're not going to recognize him as the true king, the one sent by God to rescue you and redeem you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to save your life, to give you hope in the future, the one that is the great I am who is with you in the middle of the storm and the trouble and the hardship. You say, well, wait a minute, I go to church. I practically have perfect attendance. I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm in a home group. What about all those things? Well, clearly, as the disciples show us, you can be, you can be next to Jesus and witness all kinds of miraculous things and your heart can be hard towards him. You can be a million miles from him. And that last section here, really in verses 53 through 56, I believe actually Mark puts this in. It's really just a summary statement. But, but there really is a contrast here. Mark highlights the difference between the hard-heartedness of the disciples who are not getting it, and yet these crowds who, soon as they docked, they recognized Jesus. And that word there actually means they, almost to the, to the point of worship, some of them did. They ran to him. They brought the sick to him. They got up. Up, and, up close and personal with him, they touched his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Very public. Thousands of people from the countryside and the cities coming to Jesus, and he's changing their lives. And it wasn't because of a magical garment. There's nothing magical about a garment. It was about having faith in the one who was wearing the garment. The disciples here failed to grasp who Jesus really was even though they were so close to him. They failed to consider how God had worked, had he been faithful in the past, and how he was going to be with them in the middle of the storm. And brothers and sisters, that's really our test as well. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're, we're not expected to, to be fearless in every circumstance of life, not at all. But we are expected to learn from God's faithfulness in the past and to grow in faith for the future. That's the test for us. That's the challenge for us as followers of Jesus. Because the storms will come and the winds will blow. So what will you do? Will you put your faith in the great I am? That the God who walks on water, who can do the impossible, who can meet you when no one else can, right in the middle? Will you understand that in the midst of your storm, that's exactly where... Jesus is. That's exactly where you need him to be, and that's where you find that he absolutely is. He is with you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is actually in you. So will you put your faith in him, or will you kind of be like the hard-hearted disciples here, 
They're in trouble. They know it. And so they're rowing tormentedly, keeping a safe distance, at least trying to rescue themselves. Even when Jesus passed through the mother of all storms, when he was betrayed and when he was killed on the cross for our sins, he passed the test. He remained faithful. So there's great hope for all of us who seek to follow Jesus as well. Sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes we lack faith. Sometimes we are. Our hearts are hard towards Jesus. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus loves hard-hearted disciples. I mean, if he loved us when we were spiritually dead, he certainly has lots of grace and mercy and help when our hearts aren't really close to him at all. He loves to rescue his people. And in the gospel, we see a king who doesn't kill us, but a king was killed for us. He died on the cross to rescue us from our sins. He gives us his forgiving grace as we confess our sins. Lord, I, I lack faith. I don't know. I'm not at the end of myself, but I know that you need to bring me to the end of myself. He gives us his forgiving grace, but he also then gives us his enabling grace so that we can change, that we can grow, that we can become more like him. And that grace, brothers and sisters, is absolutely sufficient for every trial and every storm that you and I will face this week and for the rest of life. Let's pray.